Hey, up, Sassnacks! It's Chelsea back for another episode of the Sassnack Files. This week, I'm discussing the season one finale of Men in Kilts on the Battle of Culloden. But before we get to that, I want to take a moment to remind you that you can find the Sassnack Files on all sorts of listening platforms, including iTunes, Castbox, Spotify. Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, and many more. Also, if you have not had a chance yet, make sure you head over to follow the Sassnack Files on both Facebook and Instagram to make sure you are up to date on all of the latest and greatest news concerning Outlander Seasons 7 and 8, as well as the prequel Blood of My Blood, Season 2 of Men in Kilts, and anything Diana Gabaldon gets up to. And with all of that out of the way, let's get into my breakdown of The Battle of Culloden. This episode is kind of unique in the Men in Kilts universe because it circles around one particular event and the lead up to that event. So I think it's only fair that before we really get into the nitty gritty of the Battle of Culloden and what happened there, we talk a little bit about the Jacobite Rising and how it got its start. I'm guessing if you're listening to an episode on Men in Kilts, you've likely watched Outlander and you know that the Jacobite Risings are all about who people rightfully believed should be ruling Scotland. The Jacobites believed that the deposed King James should rule Scotland, and the British, or the governmental side, as it's referred to quite often, obviously were fighting for German Geordie, as they called him, because the Hanovers were descendants of William and Mary, and they were sitting on the throne at the time of all of these uprisings in Scotland. The 45 is only the last Jacobite rising and probably the most famous one, but there were several Jacobite risings before that that kind of failed. The other one that is notable was the 1715 rising, but you can't fault the Scots for trying, I guess. They believed a Scot should sit on the throne and they really had a problem with the religious battles that were being waged politically within Great Britain at that time. King James was deposed because he was a Catholic and William and Mary were put on the throne in his stead because they were Protestant. It really just made for some high tensions for a lot of time. They were trying very heavily to allow Protestantism to gain a firm foothold in Scotland. Jacobites primarily were Catholic, not all of them. A lot of them believed that King James should sit on the throne simply because he was the rightful king. Didn't necessarily matter that he was Catholic or Protestant. It's a very intense kind of series of events that leads up to Prince Charlie landing in Scotland. When Charlie finally lands, it kind of starts the ball rolling on this momentous occasion. And I don't think that men showed up for Charlie like he thought they would. It really started as a trickle of people coming in. And there were the extremely loyal Scots that showed up from the very start. And then it kind of just, as they moved through Scotland, they kind of picked up more people. But even when they got to the battle at Preston Pans, they only had 2,500 men. It wasn't until after they won at Preston Pans that 
they really started to grab people's attention and be like, oh, maybe this time is different. Because remember, there had been several risings prior to this. So was this the time that they were going to win? And whenever they got this huge rout at Preston Pan's Lake, they ran the British off with their tail between their legs. I think a lot of people kind of jumped on the bandwagon, as it were, and the Jacobite army swelled from its 2,500 men that they had scraped together up to 5,500 men, which is what they had on the field at Culloden when ultimately everything went sour. Bonnie Prince Charlie landed in northern Scotland. So there's this poem that was written by Andrew Lang, which I want to read to you guys because it's a cool poem. So it says, "'Twas a day of faith and flowers, of honor that could not die, of hope that counted the hours of sorrowing loyalty. And the blackbird sang in the closes, the blackbird piped in the spring, for the day of the dawn of the roses, the dawn of the day of the king. White roses over the heather and down by the lowland lee, and far in the faint blue weather, a white sail guest on the sea. But the deep night gathers and closes, shall ever a morning bring, the lord of the leal white roses, the face of the rightful king. This is kind of expressing the joy and the doubt at the same time that a lot of these Scots were feeling. Was this going to be different? Was Charlie the right person to fight for, to put all your weight behind? And was this the time that they were going to win? I can imagine that a lot of people really believed that the Stuarts should hold the throne of Scotland, but at the same time, they've been beaten down so many times that, you know, is it going to be different this time? Is it worth it? Is it worth putting me and my family and my livelihood at risk to put my goodwill and flesh and blood behind this kid? Because he's a young man at this point. This pivotal war or rising or whatever you want to call it that happened back in 1745 and 1746 was led by some relatively young men, Bonnie Prince Charlie and the Duke of Cumberland. They were third cousins, both descendants of King James I and VI of Scotland. So we're talking about Queen Mary of Scots' son. They're both direct descendants of that line. So at the time, Charlie was only 26 and the Duke of Cumberland was 25. So they're like five years younger than I am now when all of this is going on. And that just blows my mind that they were leading entire armies at that age. And granted, I think you see a lot of Charlie's inexperience in how he handled these things, but it's just absolutely nuts to think that these major events in history were influenced by men that are younger than I am. I can't even imagine, like, this is getting off subject, but you think of Queen Victoria, who took over the throne of England at 18. Jesus. Like, I can't even remember. I didn't even have my head on straight at 18, let alone leading an entire country. It's just insanity. But, um... Yeah, Preston Pans was really just a fluke, if I'm being honest. What we see is the Jacobites getting extremely lucky and finding this back road, basically, into the British camp, catching them unawares and running them out of town, basically. If it had been where they hadn't completely ambushed the British army, they would not have had the result that they did, and they would not have garnered the support from 
the rest of the Scottish people like they did. It's kind of crazy how that worked out. And I really think that other than a couple of small skirmishes here and there, this is really the peak of the Highland army. You know, the Jacobites, they didn't have cavalry. They didn't have even decent artillery. And when you're putting an army like that up, that's not even really very well fed against the British army, who's the strongest fighting force in the world at this point in history, you just really don't stand a chance. There's a saying that one soldier fighting for his home is worth more than 10 soldiers fighting for pay. And I really think that that was kind of part and parcel of the Highland Army at this point. They really believed that God was on their side and that they had a chance in hell of winning. And I think that's what makes Culloden and the aftermath of the destruction of the Highland culture so devastating in retrospect. After Preston Pans, the Jacobite army drives across the border into England and they get to Derby. That's where the British are finally able to kind of catch their breath, figure things out, and come up with a plan. Eventually, the progress that the Highland Army is making towards London, which is their ultimate goal, stalls out. And there are multiple armies peppered between the Highland Army and London. And the Scots don't know where any of those armies are. And if they run into even one, they could probably hash it out, but they're going to take severe losses on it. If they run into more than one of these armies, they're toast. It's an educated decision. I don't know that I completely disagree with the decision, but they decide to retreat back across the border. And that's really the beginning of the end whenever they decide to retreat. Charlie had two advisors, the famous advisors. He had Lord George Murray and Quartermaster John O'Sullivan. O'Sullivan and Prince Charlie had known each other for a long time. Lord George Murray fought in previous Jacobite Risings, and he was a very experienced soldier. And so he was the commander of Charlie's forces. But George Murray and John O'Sullivan did not get along at all. We see that portrayed in season two of Outlander very well, I think. But literally, they couldn't agree on whether the sky was blue or not, I swear. And so I'm sure having this conflict between his commanding officers didn't help Charlie to make an informed decision because Charlie was young. He was in his early 20s. He didn't have any combat experience. He was very heavily relying on those around him that did have that experience. And when you are relying on two experienced men that have very different opinions on how things should be done, it really is a recipe for disaster, in my opinion. And I think Charlie bit off way more than he could chew. He didn't realize what he was getting into. It really frustrated me when I visited Culloden. I was overwhelmed with the amount of grief and anger I felt reading what was happening and walking the lines and seeing how many casualties and kind of what the situation was. Like walking around on that battlefield, it just makes no sense why they were even there. Like it's a terrible place for a battle, especially when your primary weapon is a Highland charge. It's a bog. There was just a lot about that particular battle. 
Culloden that it just didn't make sense to me and it, it upset me because I don't, being there on the ground and looking out at it, I just didn't understand how anybody ever thought that they could come out victors in a battle on that ground. It just wasn't in their best interest to fight there. And so when we listen to the historians that talk in this episode of Men in Kilts, they're talking about how the Jacobite army in their retreat back north, dug in in Inverness. Inverness was the last seaport that was under the control of the Jacobites. Everything else was under control of the government and the British army. So Inverness was Charlie and the Jacobites' last hope. So they were encamped waiting for the French to break the British blockade outside of Inverness to give them men, to give them weapons, to give them money so they could have food because their army was starving at this point. Their supply lines had been routed. They were driven back up north. Scotland is not necessarily a bountiful country back in the day anyway. They're literally starving to death and they come to Culloden. The British army's hot on their trail and the French can't break the British blockade. So they're encamped at Culloden, which literally translates to boggy place. And that's where the British meet them. The historian that Sam and Graham talked to is saying, well, it's not necessarily that they picked this place to have a battle. The main road into Inverness comes through this area. So if Inverness is your last stronghold and you're wanting to protect that seaport, it makes sense that you would have a battle to defend the road that leads into that city and that port. So that's why this battle happened here. Not necessarily because they came across and it was like, oh, this is a great place for a battle. Let's just settle in here. Which did make me feel a little bit better about the decision-making skills that were involved in having this battle here. I mean, for the British, it was great. They just made a line on one side of the bog and they let the Highlanders come to them. They bombarded them with cannon for 20 minutes before the Jacobites finally just decide, you know what, the hell with it, we're just gonna go. And so they took off doing this Highland charge, which is, it's 300 yards, guys. Like, it's a long way. And I know it's hard to envision this kind of place when you haven't ever seen it and you've only seen pictures or maps. But when I visited Culloden for the first time, you can walk all the way around it. So you can walk down the governmental lines. It's marked with red flags all the way down. And then you kind of cut and go towards the Jacobite lines. And along that way is where you start to see the clan stones and you see the memorial cairn. So each of these stones is really laid where the majority of that clan fell. And it's not necessarily that they all fell in that group right there, but like along the line, like that's that's kind of where the centrally located spot was that the majority of that clan fell, either wounded or dead. There are several different clan stones there and, and that memorialize that area. But then you start walking and you walk all the way and you just keep walking and keep walking, and keep walking. I remember doing a Facebook Live at that point on my private page, and I talked for like 10 minutes, and I just, I was only about halfway. Granted, I wasn't in a hurry, but just imagining thousands of men, like over 5,000 men running full tilt 300 yards towards three lines of British officers, plus your reserve and their cannons, 
God, and they were starving and it was freezing cold and the ground was boggy. It was just like, there's no way. (laughs) There's just no way that it could have worked. And I get that at that point, they were just trying to do what they could. Also, they didn't take into account that the British had adjusted their fighting strategy. So after Preston Pans and all of these smaller skirmishes that the Scots had with the government troops, Cumberland, who was far more of an experienced soldier than Charlie was, came up with the idea to adjust their tactics. And whenever they had fixed bayonets, instead of stabbing straight forward, they would stab to the right into the exposed side of the swordsman who was attacking the soldier next to them in the lines. I was actually really glad that Sam and Graham and Ian and Jim reenacted this a little bit in Men in Kilts so that you could really envision what they were talking about because Graham brought up a good point that discipline is what won the day for the government troops. If one man were to break that training and not stab the person to the right of him, then it's just a domino effect and the Highland army begins to gain the upper hand. And in fact, this did happen further on down the line, but it wasn't enough of a deviation from their training to change the course of the battle. There are a couple of small details when we're talking about weaponry for the Battle of Culloden. I think a lot of people picture the Battle of Culloden as sword against sword and the Highlanders didn't have any advanced weaponry. That wasn't totally true. The Jacobite army did have some artillery. It wasn't a ton. It wasn't the most cutting edge and they weren't well supplied, but they did have artillery. Some soldiers did have pistols. In fact, whenever Sam and Graham visited the Glencoe Folk Museum in Clanlands, Sam talks about how he actually got to hold a single shot pistol that they found on the field at Culloden Moor. So they actually still do regular archaeological excavations out on the moor, and they're constantly finding things. And if you go into the Culloden Visitor Center, it's a really cool place, and you can see a lot of the stuff that they found out there. They found tons of musket balls and buttons and coins. They found little single-shot pistols, all kinds of stuff, really. Even, I believe, they found deep down in the bog... I want to say they found some tartan a couple of years ago, which is is kind of really impressive if you think about it. So the Jacobite army had variations of weaponry. We kind of see some of that weaponry portrayed both in Clanlands and Men in Kilts. One of the things that I actually really liked about this episode is that we got to kind of meet some of the behind the scenes crew that work on Outlander. We got to see two of their armorers, Jim Elliott and Ian Bowden, and we got to see their combat expert, which is Charlie Allen, and learn a little bit about Scottish culture in the Jacobite era, the different kinds of weaponry that they worked with, how they trained, just general trivial knowledge I thought was pretty cool. The typical thing that Highlanders would fight with are what's called a targe, which is like a leather covered shield that sometimes had 
metal spikes sticking out of it, and then a broadsword. What we see in Outlander, most of those men have basket-hilted broadswords. They're really cool weapons. So whenever I was visiting Culloden, they actually have a display of Jacobite-era basket-hilted broadswords there. Just the pure artistry of these pieces, guys. I really enjoy historical artifacts anyway, and a couple of castles that we actually visited while we were over there had artwork made of old basket-hilted broadswords and like different types of weapons, like pistols and dirks and stuff. The really cool thing about this broadsword that they displayed in Men in Kilts was that the inside handle was coated in ray skin. If you've ever touched a shark or a ray, if you brush one way, it's rubbery. If you brush the opposite direction, it's really rough, almost like Velcro. So the point of coating the the handle of these swords with that kind of skin is that whenever their hands would get wet, whether with sweat or rain or blood, they wouldn't lose their grip and the sword handle wouldn't spin around on them. I thought that that was a super creative remedy for that kind of problem. And I, you know, Sam and Graham made a joke out of it. And they're like, I wonder if that was part of their advertising, you know, like, buy my broadswords so that when your hand is covered in blood, it doesn't slip. (laughs) Which I mean, yes, it's funny, but also ingenious. Whoever came up with that idea, like that's really cool. They talk a little bit about dirks, which Graham says that that is probably one of his favorite weapons just for the sheer creativity that you can have with a dirk as far as how you want to use it because it's like super sharp, but it has a serrated portion of the blade and it's super long. They look really cool. I know Sam had mentioned that he actually still has his dirk that he was given in season one as part of Jamie's weaponry. He actually has that to keep, which I thought was really cool. A lot of different cool weaponry that was used back in the day. One thing that I thought was interesting that they talked a little bit about in Clanlands was the fact that fathers did not teach their sons how to fight. That job was left to their uncles, which I thought was kind of cool and really lends a bit of authenticity to Diana's story on Dougal fostering Jamie. And that's when he learned sword play and stuff like that, because traditionally it wasn't a job for a father to teach his son how to do these things. So the Battle of Culloden only lasted 60 minutes. But when they look at total casualties for that day, they count who died in that 60 minutes and the following three days. The Jacobite forces totaled 5,500 men when they walked onto the field. Over 1,500 died during the battle and in the three days after. The historian that's telling the story, she says, now when I say men, you have to remember that some of the youngest People that were fighting on that day were 13 years old. And that just, that just made me so sad to think that like 13 year old boys were fighting these fights and, you know, possibly dying alone on a battlefield. 
It really broke my heart. And then you had the women and the children that were in the baggage train as camp followers that were also deeply impacted by what happened on that day. And it's not just the people that were there that were affected. The Battle of Culloden really impacted the Scottish culture in a way that no event before or after has done. Their whole way of life was lost. The Gaelic language was banned. The playing of bagpipes was banned. The wearing of tartan was banned. Literally, like, the clan system was dismantled because of this event in history. And Scotland became a very different place after the Battle of Culloden. Scottish culture is very much about where you come from, your family. That's the whole idea behind a clan system is safety in numbers, taking care of each other. So when you look at the Battle of Culloden and the Jacobite army, I think one thing that I found most touching about this episode was they talked to a historian and an author, Alistair Moffat, and he brought up several really good points. The first is that the Jacobite army was first and foremost a family army. You're talking about clans fighting for the person that they believed should be king. Clans literally are the definition of family. So a lot of times you had brothers fighting with brothers by their sides or uncles or nephews, fathers and sons. So when you look at how devastating Culloden was, I mean, you're losing entire families at once in some cases. Something that was really cool, I thought, right after the cannonade started at the beginning of the Battle of Culloden, British soldiers said they thought that they heard singing coming from the Jacobite line. What it really was, was all these Highlanders reciting their family trees, their genealogy. Some of these men could go back 20 plus generations which is just insane. 20 generations. Son of, son of, son of, son of. 20 times. And the whole point behind that is that they were summoning the army of the dead. And they fully believed that their ancestors could give them wisdom and strength and be with them in battle to protect them. So I thought that that was really freaking cool. Sam obviously was getting goosebumps hearing Alistair talk about it, but... They brought up the good point that that is something that you would only hear about happening in Scotland, I feel like. There's hardly another culture in the world that I can think of that really digs in and appreciates their lineage as much as the Scottish culture does or did. There was something about that that I was like, oh, I have to talk about that today. Alistair has a really good quote, and I'm going to read it to you guys because I just feel like it's a very impactful statement. It says... On the battlefield, there were terrible atrocities that went on, but afterwards, the Duke of Cumberland's soldiers were committing a genocide. So it wasn't just about taking out the soldiers that were fighting that battle. It was about taking out that entire culture by the roots, ripping it out like a weed. That was the whole point of what the Duke of Cumberland and his soldiers did following the Battle of Culloden. So the, the Highland culture and the Highland people, the Scots in general, were just spread to the four corners of the earth like ashes. 70,000 people left the Western Highlands and Islands during the Highland clearances. So this isn't directly attached to the Battle of Culloden by any means, 
But these clearances took place between 1760 and 1803. So the Battle of Culloden was April 16th of 1746. So this is starting about 15 years after the Battle of Culloden. But this is kind of just continuing to steamroll the Scottish people. So you have the Highland clearances from 1760 to 1803 as landowners are clearing people off of their land to make way for sheep. Then to kind of compound with that, the people that didn't clear out of the highlands because of the clearances then had to deal with the Scottish potato famine between 1846 and 1856. And that saw the immigration of a third of the highlands population. And so that's why to this day, you see so many different countries that have Scottish influences. We talk about the United States and Canada. We talk about New Zealand and Australia. These are places that the Scots went and settled and started their new traditions, but also kept the old way of life as well. And so that's why I'm really excited to eventually get to see Sam and Graham talk about New Zealand in season two and kind of visit them because I really do want to see like I know how the American culture has been influenced by the Scottish culture but I'm curious to see how it's impacted New Zealand's culture in this day and age so even to this day when you go and you visit the Scottish Highlands it is a very sparsely populated area you have these teeny tiny little towns that have maybe a hundred people you have a couple of other smaller towns that have a couple hundred people. Inverness, which is the capital of the Highlands, is the biggest city north of Edinburgh and Glasgow. And it's not a huge city, guys. It just kind of goes to show that this culture shock that they got as a result of the Battle of Culloden is still felt today, even if it's not entirely noticeable. That was kind of my thoughts on the Battle of Culloden and uh, the end of the Scottish culture as it was known in the 18th century. They end this episode of Men in Kilts with Ian McGilvery playing La Cabre No More. It's a song that was composed right after the Battle of Culloden. It's a very somber song. And I think having one lone bagpiper play it as he walks past the clan stones on Culloden Moor is just absolutely gut-wrenching. There's something about the bagpipes that's so haunting and soulful and sad all at the same time. And then when you couple it with this energy that Culloden has, there's just something about it. I'm curious to know your guys' experiences at Culloden because I've visited a lot of battlefields But there is something about Culloden. It's this energy that it has. It's very mournful and just somber. And I don't know whether it's because I've done some research into it and I know some of the things that happened there and just the horridness of it. But it really did. It gets me every time I set foot on that piece of land. And as a history person, I think it's really cool that they're still doing archaeological digs out there. I know I talked about it a little bit earlier, but they are always finding new things. So I will read you this before I forget, because it was honestly one of the coolest things that I read in the Clanlands book. You can always tell who's writing Sam or Graham based on what the topic is that they're discussing. But Graham wrote this. He says... 
A 75 caliber lead ball from a brown best musket is accurate at 50 yards, and the recovered bullets found by archaeologists tell a horrifying story. Many bullets show only slight traces of impact, having passed into and often straight through the fleshy parts of the body. When the same bullet hits a bone, it is flattened by the impact. At close range, the red-hot lead bullet will actually take on the warp and weft of the fabric worn by the victim. Some bullets turned into the shape of a clamshell almost split in two as they hit the hard edge of an upraised broadsword. So these are the things that were being shot (laughs) out of rifles or muskets and directly at Highlanders that were charging across 300 yards with their swords and single shot pistols that a lot of them had fired too early and just had to throw away. Yeah, I that when I read that in Clanlands, I knew I had to share it with you guys because I know a lot of you probably haven't read Clanlands, but there are just certain little details that you can get from the book that they just couldn't really put into men and kilts for time reasons, I'm sure. They did have a very comprehensive episode, I thought, for the Battle of Culloden, but the Battle of Culloden is just so complex in the lead up to it that you could talk about it in a two-hour documentary and still not cover absolutely everything there is to cover. With that being said, I think I'm going to wrap up for the day. I did not have a Sam and Graham shenanigans of the week because I felt like this was a relatively serious episode, but the witty one-liner, it's in their wrap-up that they do at the end of the episodes. And Sam says, hey, we're still alive. And Graham says, I'm not going to say no thanks to you, but... (laughs) And then it has like all the flashbacks of all the crazy shit that Sam made Graham do over the course of this road trip. So I really did like that that's kind of the note that they finished on. That and Sam giving Graham a bottle of Sassnack because literally for the entire Clanlands book, that's all Graham did was bitch about how he's not had... A bottle of Sam's whiskey yet. Anyway, alrighty, guys. Well, as I'm recording this, it is April 19th of 2023, and we got our first promotional stills of Jamie and Claire for season seven, and they are so beautiful. It's Jamie and Claire in an embrace in what looks like a army camp of some sort with canvas tents and lanterns and fires in the background. Claire has blood all over her. Clearly, she has been working in a field hospital. Jamie's standing with her, embracing her or standing in front of her protectively. Gorgeous coloration, gorgeous stance. I've seen a lot of people say that they think this is the best first look promotional stuff that we've had of any of the seasons. I do agree because it does tell us a lot about the story that we're getting ready to partake in in June and kind of what we have to look forward to, but it's also very much beautiful artwork that they can use for interviews and promotional stuff. It's really good. I'm really excited. I think we're going to get a trailer soon. I know that I've been saying this for like two or three weeks now, but I can feel it coming. Like, I can feel it looming off in the distance. I think it might be this coming Friday, which will probably be before this episode airs because I'm getting ready to go out of town, but it's really close. I can feel it. So I will get off of here for this week. Thank you for joining me for my Men in Kilts series. I'll pick back up with it when season two comes out, whenever that is. I've got it on my to-do list. So 
I will definitely be podcasting on season two. I'm really hoping there's some sort of companion book that goes along with it because like I said, I feel like I got so much out of doing clan lands and men in kilts together like this. I hope you'll join me for season two whenever we get around to podcasting on that. Until then, this is my last scheduled podcast until after season seven part one airs. I have a couple of live shows planned, so I will be doing a live podcast whenever the season seven trailer drops so that I can discuss that with you guys at length. But I also have a live podcast planned for May 27th at 2 p.m. Angela from Queen Bee's Hive is going to be joining me so that we can do our countdown to season seven episode where we're going to break everything down by episode and what we think is going to be in that episode. So we'll take all the behind the scenes and extra material that we have gleaned from the past few weeks and combine it all and put it out there for you guys to chew on. That'll be a live show on TSF Obsassinax. So if you're not a member of TSF Obsassinax, make sure to head over and request to join. Make sure to fill out all three admission questions and agree to follow the rules. And please request your admission at least one hour prior to the start of the show so that we can make sure to get your request approved so you can participate. Also, if you're a fan of the Sassnack files and you want to support my future endeavors so that I can continue to grow the Sassnack files, please think about joining my Patreon page, the Sassnack files. The lowest tier is only $5 a month and you get access to all of my show notes. I'm dropping one or two a week for you guys to kind of see my thoughts, the inner workings of my mind, because I've had a lot of requests for unedited versions of my podcast, and I just really think that that's not something anybody wants to listen to. (laughs) But this is going to be as close as you can get because these are my raw, uncensored notes on my takes for the episode. And there are just some things in those notes that you're not necessarily going to get in the final cut of a recorded episode. So that's only $5 a month. If you want to jump up to the $10 tier, you will get access to all of my monthly blog posts. And you will also get my knee-jerk reactions for all kinds of new Outlander material, including trailers, new episode releases, any promotional stuff like show credits, and all kinds of stuff like that. Of course, there are higher tiers, and if you're interested in those, you can head over to Patreon and check me out. But please do think about joining. It's going to be fun, especially when the new season starts, because I'm going to be doing all of my knee-jerk reactions where I'm reacting to the show as as they go instead of looking at it as a whole like I do for the podcast version of my recordings. I hope you guys will check it out. I'm going to head off of here, but you guys stay safe out there and I will make sure to post whenever I get ready to do my season seven trailer review. You guys have a good one. Bye. Bye.